Father, we thank you for today, Lord. We thank you for um, the opportunity for us to gather together and worship you. God, I pray that you help us learn something from your word um, and help me um, teach and share it accurately, Lord, with uh, my fellow church members. God, I pray that you will um, convict us of our sin and, and um, give us the humility to confess our sin to you, Lord, and ask for forgiveness. God, we're so thankful for um, you sending your son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins. Father, uh, we, we continue to pray for Evan, Lord. We pray that you'll help him in his missionary work and help us be a church that can support him, not only financially, but also um, in bringing uh, his name to your throne and, and bringing his request to you, Lord. We also pray for those that we know who are unsaved, Father. We pray that you will draw them to you, God. We pray that you will save them. And Lord, we pray that if it's your will, that uh, you would use us um, in their lives to be a catalyst for gospel conversation, Lord. Um, we also, Lord, pray for Pastor Chuck. Um, we pray for his ministry down in North Carolina, and we also just pray for our church, Lord, that you will continue to guide us and lead us as we go through um, the rest of this summer, Lord. We love you, and we need you, and we're th so thankful for who you are and for the gift that you've given us through your Son. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today we are going to be um, continuing in our uh, series on the Sermon on the Mount. Um, so we'll begin be beginning today with Matthew chapter 5. Um, and at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, as we talked about the last couple of weeks, is uh, the Beatitudes. And what the Beatitudes are, are, they're what we read at the beginning of the service. They're essentially um, a, a list of virtues and qualities that a true believer in Jesus Christ and a true God-fearing man or woman would have. These, these uh, Beatitudes are the foundation and they are the intro to the Sermon on the Mount. The central theme of the whole sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, which I encourage you um, sometime this week if you can, uh, just open up to Matthew chapter 5 uh, one day and read Matthew chapter 6 the next day and Matthew chapter 7 the following day and read through the Sermon on the Mount so that you can get familiar with where we're going to be spending a whole bunch of our time. But the foundational theme of the Sermon on the Mount is the Christian life, is living the Christian life. Um, it's, it's practical examples of loving your neighbor. It's practical examples of honoring the Lord in your actions and in your heart. Um, one commentator said that he summed up the Sermon on the Mount essentially as love one another as he has loved us. The, the summation of the Sermon on the Mount is to love one another as God has loved us, as Christ has loved us. Martin Lloyd-Jones pointed out in, uh, in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount that it focuses primarily on Christian conduct, uh, on Christian conduct uh, in terms of the Sermon on the Mount as a whole, but the intro to the Sermon on the Mount, which is the Beatitudes, focuses on character. And he drew the connection that though the Sermon on the Mount is generally about Christian conduct, it has to start with Christian character. In other words, you cannot have godly conduct if you do not first have godly character. And, you know, we know that you cannot have godly character unless you first are a follower of God. Um, so last week we talked about what it looks like to mourn and to go through trials as a Christian, as a godly person, and how the Lord blesses us through the trials and blesses us through our mourning. And so this week, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, verse 5, um, and we're, this is just simply the third beatitude that Jesus goes over. So we'll read it together. And before we do, um, I had made these PowerPoints with the font like a normal size, and we couldn't figure out how to convert them over without it being like really big. But Scripture says the Word of God does not return void, and I think today it certainly won't because it's, it's rather large. Um, but anyway, Matthew chapter 5, verse 5 uh, says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So that's all, we're, that's all where we're going to be today is blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So 
Um, most of the, the scripture reading uh, that we've been doing is, is out of the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible. This verse I chose out of the ESV because it uses the word meek. Christian Standard Bible uses the word humble. Now, both words are uh, applicable. Both words are acceptable. But I think meek is kind of more, uh, more prevalently used. Um, there's there's kind of three more, most common interpretations of this word meek um, in, in the original language. Um, it'll either be humble, as some translations do. It'll be gentle, as other translations do, like the NASB. Or as the ESV um, says, it's, uh, it's the word meek here. So when, you're looking at, when we're looking at this word, because I think in order to, to figure out who in the world Jesus is blessing, we need to figure out who, uh, who the meek are. Um, when we're looking at the word that's used in the Greek, it was often used as uh, a word to talk about taming a wild animal or training an animal so that it would uh, be under the submission of its master, so that the power and the control and the vigor of an animal wouldn't just be used wildly for all kinds of different things, but would be under the control, and like I said, the, submissing, the, the submission of the master so that its strength and its power could be used when it's necessary for it to be used and not just flailing around, you know, moving around like wild animals do. So um, this, this word uh, that's used for meek is often best translated as gentle, lowly, hum- or humble. Um, and, and like I said, most translations will use the word meek. So what is Jesus saying here? What does he mean when he says, blessed are those who submit themselves like an animal does under the control of his master? Blessed are those who, who, who make their temperament gentle, who, who are humble before God. Well, if you look at the, the usage um, of this word, it, it's clear that, um, that we see the context that they used it in, in terms of, in terms of animal rearing. Um, but the, the, the power that was being restrained in the rearing of an animal wasn't just to make this animal uh, weak, or wasn't just to make this animal just a soft animal that couldn't be used for hard work. This, um, this text is not saying that blessed are the meek, blessed are the people who just humble themselves and make themselves gentle and lowly and can never have any strength or vigor because that's not how this word was used initially. The purpose of taming an animal is to teach the animal to control its natural wild instinct and to bring it under the submission of a master who will give it direction and who will know how to best use the strength of the animal. That's the picture that's being painted here. We, we as humans, we're born with a natural predisposition to arrogance. We're born with a natural predisposition to pride. And we desire to be on top. But to become meek is to come under the control and the submission of our Lord. To become dren- gentle is to reserve our natural instinct to be evil, to be prideful, to be haughty, and to reserve that and to say, no, I'm going to be humble and I'm choosing to be meek. So when Jesus here blesses those who are meek, He's blessing those who have the self-control to control the nature they were born with, suppress the evil side of it, and to humbly and gently interact with those around them. This is important um, for many reasons, but but once again, this this beatitude is so backwards to the society that Jesus lived in. So we looked at the first beatitude. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. That was so backwards from their society because those who were poor in spirit were not the ones who were blessed. It was the Pharisees who were blessed. And then Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, which is once again, very backwards to the society that Jesus was in. And once again, Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. In Jesus' day, to get on top, people would often assert themselves and be arrogant and be bold. The Pharisees were the most common culprit of this. The Pharisees were the most common 
culprit of not being meek. And Jesus is intentionally not blessing them. The Pharisees would often pray on the street corners. They would often get up and, and say their prayers in front of people so that they would be applauded. They would be visibly fasting so that you could tell by their face that they haven't been eating. And not so that they could worship the Lord in their devotion to him and spend time in prayer, but so that people would look at them and realize, oh, that person is fasting and they must be so much more religious than I am. They would frequently boast in their knowledge of the scriptures. They would have looked so strong in the world's eyes, but yet they lacked humility and they lacked meekness. So when Jesus blesses those who are gentle, it's backwards to the listeners of Jesus' blessing. And think of how this correlates to our society today. I think it correlates uh, quite, quite strikingly. In our day, pride and arrogance in our culture is, is rampant. Not only do the ungodly boast about their sin, but oftentimes, just like the Pharisees did, the godly boast in their supposed righteousness, which is equally as arrogant and equally as sinful as boasting about your sin. In many ways, we are pursuing the world's definition of inheriting the earth rather than Christ's definition of inheriting the earth. And we desperately need Jesus' admonition to be meek. See, meekness is the ability to humbly, calmly, and gently respond to all manner of life circumstances. Meekness is not something one person is born with and another is not. Just because someone has a more natural, gentle temperament doesn't mean that they're meek because meekness entails humility. And oftentimes outward humility doesn't really even correlate to inward humility. Someone can appear to be meek because they were born quieter or something like that. But the appearance of meekness and meekness itself are two different things. Meekness is, is thoroughly intertwined with gentleness and with humility and with lowliness of self. And really, it correlates very, very similarly to being poor in spirit, as we saw in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Meekness is a character trait that only Christians can possess and ones that we must possess. And one, that, one, one character trait that we must pursue having. And the greatest example of meekness that we can find, just like the greatest example with every other Christian virtue, is in the person and work of Jesus Christ. In Matthew eleven twenty nine, Jesus says this, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble at heart. I read that wrong. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So Christ says, I'm gentle and I'm lowly. Christ says, I'm gentle and I'm humble. This word gentle that's used here is the same word in the original language that's used in Matthew 5.5. 5. Jesus is saying, learn from me. Take, take, take my yoke upon you and learn from me because I am gentle and lowly and I am gentle and humble at heart. So Christ is to be our example. Christ is to be our example is what it looks like to be meek and to be humble and to be gentle. It's worth noting at this moment that every one of the virtues that are displayed in the Beatitudes are virtues that Jesus Christ holds. He's the embodiment of what it means to be holy. Christ is the only one who is truly meek. He's the only one who truly hungers and thirsts for righteousness. He's the only one who was really persecuted for righteousness' sake to an extent that's far greater than the rest of us will ever experience. He's the only one who, who, who has been poor in spirit and just laid himself out for us. In Paul's letter to the Philippians, he gives us just a beautiful excerpt, I think, on, on what the meekness of Christ looks like. He, he begins with an admonition for the believers in Philippi to pursue humility and meekness. 
So we're going to focus on verses 3 through 5 in just a little bit um, as they give us some clarity on what it looks like for believers to be meek. Um, but the rest, of the, the rest of the text from 5 through, uh, through 9, the rest of the text from 5 through 9 is this real beautiful writing of, of the example of Christ's meekness. So if you, if you have your Bibles with you, open to, uh, to Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 9. I'll give you guys just a second to get there. We'll be in this, in this passage quite a bit today, so keep your thumb, keep your thumb on that page. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 9. Like I said, we're going to be focusing on mostly 5 through 9 for right now, and in a few minutes we'll, be, we'll move to 3 and 4 and 5. So Paul, in his letter to the Philippians, writing from jail, by the way, says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not only to his interest, but also to the interest of others. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his advantage. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men. And when he had come as a man in his, eternal, in his external form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every other name. So Paul's addressing believers here with a command right at the outset to be humble. He gives a concrete explanation of what humility looks like. And, and we're going to dive into that, like I said, in just a few minutes. But I want us for a moment to focus on verse 5. After the admonition to be humble, to not think of yourself um, as more important than other people. Paul says, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. In other words, we're to embody the characteristics of verse 3 through 4 because those characteristics were the same characteristics that Jesus Christ held. So I want us to continue. To, uh, I'm, I'm going to read through verses five through 6 through 9 rather again and really look at those carefully and see how Jesus Christ embodied meekness as a display for the rest of us to see. He, being Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, this is verse 6, did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of man. And when he had come as a man in his external form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every other name. So Jesus, who was God, who was existing in the form of God, did not consider that to be something to be grasped or taken advantage of. He wasn't limited by human temptation or the human nature. He was in the form of God and not at all in the form of a man. But because of his love for us, he emptied himself, coming to the earth in the form of a mortal man. He assumed the role of a slave. He took on the role of a human being. Think of how wild that is. God is so much greater than we are. He is so much greater than we are. And the God of the universe decided to send his son, Jesus Christ, who is God, to the earth to take on the form of a human being. Jesus lowered himself. Jesus humbled himself. And that's what this text is speaking of. There could be no better embodiment, I think, of the word humble 
or the word meek than this, than this section of scripture right here. As an equal to God, Jesus humbled himself. He took on human flesh so that he could bear the weight of our sins. Then verse 8 says, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. So this verse, I think, says so much right here. First, he humbled himself, Christ humbled himself by being obedient to the Father, submitting to the will of the Father. And this is indicative of the hierarchy that is within the triune nature of God. So the God we worship is a triune God. This means that he's one being that's made up of three persons with distinct and different roles. But we must in no way come close to thinking that the hierarchy that's within the Godhead doesn't equal complete equality. So there is hierarchy within the Godhead. God is is the Father. Jesus submits to the Father and the Holy Spirit is sent out by Christ through the Father. But that in no way teaches that there is any inequality within the value and the worth of the Godhead. We see this clearly in, in, the, in a few of the verses, but in verse 6, it teaches that Christ is equal to the Father because it says, though he did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. And then again, later in verse 8, it makes it clear that Jesus willingly submits to the Father. Now, this passage here, just as a quick aside, Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 9, this is excellent for evangelism to any cults of Christianity. Most, most of the cults that have branched off of Christianity like Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, and, and, and those different branches of, of cults, deny the triune nature of God. They deny the Trinity. And I think a lot of Christians, if, if uh, a Mormon knocks on their door, which chances are half of you have experienced this, a lot of Christians, if a Mormon knocks on your door and starts to talk to you, and you find out he doesn't believe in, in the Trinity, a lot of Christians wouldn't know where to turn because there's not a verse that says, there is a Trinity. The word Trinity is not found in the Scripture. But this passage right here displays it very perfectly. And just, just as a side note, it's something to remember and keep in mind as you interact with people of different belief systems. But the, the culture that we live in, just to kind of go back to this text, the culture we live in has painted this picture and, and believes that for some reason, hierarchy in and of itself is evil and unbiblical. But the Bible teaches nothing close to that. Hierarchy is a normal part of the world that God has made. There's no shortage of people today who claim that the submission and the headship roles that are given in biblical marriage are evil. There's no shortage of people who will say that the Bible is wrong on that. And while most of those people are secularists, and most of those people are not Christians, which coincidentally makes it so they don't really have a moral ground to, to say that it's wrong, but while, while those, mo- most of those people don't even believe in God, there are some Christians who will say that, no, what Paul said in, uh, in Ephesians 5 and in different passages is sinful because hierarchy in and of itself is sinful. And it's wrong for there to be um, headship and submission. But if someone's going to make that claim, what they're really doing is they're blaspheming the Trinity. Because we see in this text that there is hierarchy in the Godhead. So if they're going to say that hierarchy is sinful, then they're claiming that God is sinful. And we shouldn't come anywhere close to saying that. But on the alternative, there are some people who say, okay, maybe it's not sinful, whatever. At the very least, hierarchy means unequal uh, value. Hierarchy, headship and submission means unequal value. And again, that's blaspheming the Holy Trinity because the scripture says that Jesus Christ is equal to the Father. And at the same time, Jesus Christ 
is submissive to the Father. Jesus Christ obeys the Father will. And it's not begrudgingly, because Christ can't sin. He obeys the Father willingly. Now, we don't know exactly how all of this plays out. The Trinity is a mystery. Um, it just is. And that's the glorious thing about our God, is that we don't understand him. If we did, I think he'd be a pretty small God. Um, but we have to understand that when, when a confessing Christian makes these arguments, they're choosing to either be intellectually dishonest or to blaspheme the Trinity. And n- neither one of those is a place that any Christian should be. So Christ is God. He has so much power. He's equal to the Father. But he willingly submitted to the Father in meekness and in humility. There are countless examples throughout the scriptures of the gentleness of Jesus Christ and his humility and his love for sinners. But we also need to be careful not to make the meekness and the, uh, not to make the meekness of Christ mean softness at all times. In the case of an animal, animal being tamed, like we talked about earlier, meekness implies taming the animal so its strength would be reserved for moments when it was most needed. Jesus Christ was meek. He's the best example of meekness found in the entire scripture. He was submissive to the Father. He washed his disciples' feet. He spent time with and he loved the lowly of the earth. He, he spent time with people that everybody else didn't want to spend time with. And he called them by name. He said, Matthew, come, come follow me. Matthew was a tax collector. Tax collectors had as much... Uh, Appreciation back then as they do now. And Jesus went after him. Jesus went after him. Jesus went after Zacchaeus. He went after the deceitful and the lowly people of the earth because he was humble and he was meek and he wasn't going to say, oh, I'm God, I'm too, I'm too great to spend time with people who are, who are in sin. He defined himself in Matthew chapter 11 as gentle and lowly of heart. Even with the rich young ruler, who was a man who was so full of spiritual pride that he literally told Jesus, teacher, I've kept all the commandments of the law since my youth. He said to Jesus, basically, teacher, I'm perfect. I think it's the Mark account. It says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. He still judged him. The rich young ruler, unless something changed, is not in heaven. But Jesus looked at him and loved him. And all of this is true. But this doesn't mean that Christ's meekness and his love somehow superseded his justice. A common error, I think, in in discussing the gentleness of Christ is to forget the times when Jesus, according to our human carnal standards, was less than gentle with the Pharisees. In a cursory glance at the book of Matthew, Jesus calls the Pharisees a brood of vipers. Basically says, you bag of snakes. He calls them an evil and adulterous generation. He calls them hypocrites. He calls them blind guides. He calls them cups and dishes that are clean on the outside but dirty on the inside. And he calls them whitewashed tombs. Basically a beautiful tomb on the outside. And he says that's full of bones and every kind of dead thing on the inside. And that's just a cursory glance at the book of Matthew. That's like someone coming into a church and just throwing all those insults at at the pastor because the the religious leader, the Pharisees were the religious leaders of their day. And he said, you guys are a bag of snakes. You guys are blind guides. And Jesus did that in meekness and in humility. But we often 
think of, of, of phrases like that or, or the things that Jesus said, and we say, oh, that's inherently sinful because it's not humble or it's not meek. I heard someone say, which I thought was rather humorous, if Jesus said some of the things to the Pharisees today that he said, many Christians would call Christ unchristlike. So meekness isn't the idea of taming yourself so you're completely gentle and you have no backbone, you can't stand up for anything and you just roll over when everybody wants to do anything. No, that, that's not meekness at all. Because Christ embodied meekness and Christ stood up for the truth. We cannot overemphasize the gentleness and the compassion of Christ so we paint him as an effeminate man with no backbone. Christ was meek and humble and he channeled his righteousness as criticism against those who were the false teachers and the religious leaders of his day. R.C. Sproul uh, comments on this passage uh, that we're studying today, and he says this, Our Lord himself was a paragon of meekness. No one ever really mistaken Jesus for someone who was weak and spineless. So meekness is humility and gentleness that that recognizes when when, when to humbly criticize and condemn evil. Meekness is kindness. Meekness is humility. But meekness also knows when to stand up and condemn the evil in this world. So this admonition to be like Christ in his meekness was not an admonition to be a doormat. If Jesus, if Jesus wanted to say, blessed are those who are a doormat, he would have said that. But he didn't say that. He said, blessed are those who meek because meekness is humility, it's gentleness, and it's controlled strength. You can go to the other extreme and there are some people who say, oh, well, in my righteous anger, I feel the need to tear down everybody around me because they're all wrong. And that's sinful. But we need to strike the balance like Christ did and love those who are lowly and love those who are humble and stand up for the truth. So let's turn back to, um, to Philippians chapter 2. Open up your Bibles back to Philippians chapter 2. I want to talk about what it looks like to be humble and what it looks like to be meek. Uh, we've seen the example from our Lord, but how do we truly be humble? Um, so Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. We're going to spend a few minutes here. It says, Do nothing out of... Sem- uh, out of I said that wrong. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should not look to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. Adopt the same attitude, that of Christ Jesus. So what does it mean to be humble? There are five things in this passage that I want us to focus on. There are five things in these verses, three through five, that I think we should spend our time focusing on. And the first one is this. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. We're not to do anything out of selfish ambition. It's a good thing to be a driven person and to have drive and have passion. But when your ambition is rooted in selfish desire to boost yourself over other people, it's sinful. When the point of your life is to selfishly work for only your own goals and that's all that matters to you, you're not exercising humility. When you desire to serve yourself first before every other person in the room, you're living out of selfish ambition. When you live selfishly, you're impatient, which is also sinful. The next thing that this passage says, look at that font, it just gets way smaller. I love that. The next thing that this passage says is do nothing out of vain conceit. So living for vain conceit is creating a superficial self-image that others will be jealous of. 
This vein consists so much of how people will present themselves outwardly through excessive dress or excessive makeup or, or, or all of those things, but no care for the inward parts of someone. Scripture says that in the last days, people will be lovers of themselves. And being a lover of yourself is the epitome of what it means to have vain conceit. It's this idea that for some reason, I'm just better than those around me. I think there are fewer things in our world that promote vain conceit more than media does. And um, sure, television and shows, I think, do that quite a bit. They paint a picture uh, that show what it looks like to, to care so much about yourself because, our, because, I mean, not all television, but pretty much all of it is, is not run by Christians. So they're not going to apply biblical principles to what they make. But even more than that side of media, I think s- the social media of the last 15 years or so, however long it's been, is even more entrenched in this idea of vain conceit. Now, it's, not for every, it's obviously not for every single person who uses social media. Our church uses social media. Um, it, it, it's, it's not that, but I think for everyone who, who, who uses it, I think there is a temptation in social media to paint a picture of who you are and, how, and, and all of the good things that you have and, and all of the all of the great positive attributes to yourself. That's not really accurate to who you are. And people say all the time, oh, social, social media is just a highlight reel. That, that's all it is, which is true. But it's not, it's not just a highlight reel that's negative for the people watching it. It's negative for, for us to be promoting ourselves as if we're the most important thing in the universe. Um, you know, th- this is not written in the scripture, but I think that if, if, if your social media or if someone's social media is only just a whole bunch of pictures of themselves, I think, that, I think that speaks to some real spiritual unhealthiness. And especially if those pictures are out of an attempt to draw attention to one's body in, in an inappropriate way. Social media is the epitome, I think, for many people of what it looks like to be full of vain conceit. Now, that doesn't mean it's sinful. That just means that as Christians, if we're going to engage in activities like that, we need to use a lot of caution and check our hearts and make sure that the things that we promote are not just self-glorification things, that are not just glorifying our talents or our family or our work or our business, but are primarily to glorify God. The third point is consider others as more important than yourselves. Consider others as more important than yourselves. This is probably, I think, maybe number five is, but this is probably, I think, the hardest command in this passage. We're all trained to consider our wants and our desires as more important than those around us. We see this in young kids. Um, From the beginning, they have, most of the time, a desire to be selfish. They don't want to share their toys. They they, they don't want to be kind to some of the other kids. And um, we often think that people grow out of that because they mature and they're no longer selfish. But sometimes the reason people grow out of the selfishness of a child is because of selfishness. What I mean is it's possible to try to eliminate selfishness from your life so that other people will like you more. And what is that? That's just inverted selfishness. And so a lot of people are children at heart. They're selfish at heart. They're, they're not humble at heart. Although they look like they're trying to put on that front on the outside. Someone who considers themselves as more important than other people 
is sinning. Someone who considers others as more important than themselves will not take over conversations. In fact, I think someone who's a Christian who is seeking to be humble will learn to become a better listener. Someone who considers other people as more important than themselves will very seldom interrupt. I think if you, if you leave a conversation, and we all need to do this, I'm not saying just you guys, we all need to do this. If you leave a conversation and you look back and say, man, I feel like I talked 75% of the time in that conversation. You are not considering other people as more important than yourselves. Because you're assuming that what you have to say is better and more important and more valuable right now than them. Now, there are circumstances where that's different. Obviously, I'm going to leave here today and have said 95% of the words. Um, so there are circumstances where it's different and it's probably not sinful. But generally speaking, when you leave conversations with other people, audit yourself and say, was I humble in the way I talked to them? And not just externally humble, not just like, oh, were they put off by how I responded, but internally humble? Was I truly desiring to hear what other people have to say over what I had to say? Someone who considers other people as more important than themselves will hear other people's arguments before attempting to find a rebuttal or to explain why they're correct or to, or to explain away what the other person has to say. Someone who considers others as more important than themselves will not gossip. This text doesn't say consider others as more important than yourselves if they're in the room. This text says consider others as more important than yourselves. So that means if someone is not in the room, bashing them and speaking negatively of them to make yourself look better or just to make themselves worth is not, is not considering that person as more important than yourself. Someone who considers others more important than themselves, lastly, will be inclined to try and understand why someone else believes what they believe rather than just assuming someone else is wrong because they hold a different opinion. Number four, nice and big, says, look not to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is, a care, this is a command for us to care for the needs of other people over our own needs. It's a call to be sacrificial. Looking to others' interests first will of necessity cause us to care more about what others desire than what we desire. Have you ever seen a conversation between two people where one person puts out a thought or an idea or tells a story of something that's recently happened in their life and the other person responds by saying a somewhat unrelated thought or idea or something that happened in their life. And then this person responds by giving another unrelated comment that doesn't have to do with that, but has to do with back to their first point. And then the other person responds, furthering their point. And neither person is talking to each other or listening to each other. They're talking past each other because they both care more about what they have to say than what the other person has to say. Neither party is being humble Neither party is caring for their own interests. Both people are boasting and refusing to care more about the interest of others than their own interests. A Christian, I think, is someone who is a good listener, a humble listener, and someone who hears other people before responding to them. The book of James says everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. We should be quick to listen to other people, and we should be slow to speak. And I think if we did that, many, many, many of the sins that we commit to each other would just be gone. James says in James chapter 3, um, my brothers and sisters, if any of you is not at fault in what he says, you're perfect. 
He says, you are entirely sinless if you're not at fault in what you say. Now, I don't know about you guys, but it seems pretty clear the scripture doesn't teach that you can become entirely sinless. So what is James saying? He's saying that every single one of us will be at fault in what we say. And what's the root of sins with our tongue? The root of sins with our tongue is pride. It's a desire to look good. It's a desire to cut someone else down so that, so that other people laugh. It's a desire to slander other people. And many times, many times even humor, which I'm frequently a culprit of, that tears someone else down is sinful. Because we're not looking out for the interests of other people, but we're looking for the interests of ourselves. We would rather have the pride of having other people laugh at something we said than care for someone else who probably doesn't want to have their, their faults exploited like that. Number five, we get to adopt the same attitude that Jesus Christ has. We're to imitate his patience. We're to imitate his gentleness, his care, his love for those who, called him, who caused him to be killed. Think about this. Matthew the tax collector or Zacchaeus or any of these guys that Jesus called and loved and washed their feet. I don't think he washed Zacchaeus' feet, but with the disciples. These guys that Jesus lowered himself to and humbled himself before and loved, they are the reason that he was crucified on a cross. And Jesus knew that. He wasn't blind to that. The very people that he spent three years kneeling before and loving are the exact same people who he was killed for. And it wasn't just like, it, it wasn't just like he was, he, he was, he, he wasn't knowing that he was going to die from the sins that they committed. He loved them. He pursued them. He humbled himself before them as they were sinning, committing the very things that nailed him to the cross. So we're to adopt the same attitude that Christ Jesus has. We're to humbly love those around us, even as they persecute us. And we'll talk about that in a few weeks. Christ, in his humility, was submissive to the Father. Which means that if we're going to adopt the same attitude that Jesus Christ had, we will submit to the human authorities that are around us. Children, submit and obey your parents. Otherwise, you're blaspheming the Lord. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, submit to your bosses, to your church leaders, and to the governments that God has established. And of course, there are qualifications with each of these. There has to be with human authorities. But in general, if we are going to adopt the attitude that Christ Jesus had in his humility, like we talked about at the beginning, meekness, one of the characteristics of meekness is submission. And we are to follow Christ in his submission to the Father and how we submit to those that God has put in authority over us. So this, I think all of this should convict each of us. I don't think there's one of us in this room that doesn't struggle with pride and arrogance in one way or another. And it's vitally important that we work to uproot this sin from our lives. I think the battle that we face with pride for most or all of us, will persist throughout our entire life. We will be sanctified. We will become more and more holy. More and more like Christ. 
But I think we will struggle with this our entire lives, and we will be tempted with sin our entire lives. J.C. Ryle, um, who was a, a preacher um, in the 19th century, he said this, pride sits, in, pride sits in all of our hearts by nature. We are born proud. Pride makes us satisfied with ourselves. It makes us think we're good enough. It stops our ears against advice. And ultimately, ultimately, it refuses the gospel of Jesus Christ, turning everyone to his own way. Pride sits in our hearts by nature. We are born proud. So I want to caution you, if you hear this and names of other people pop in your head as we discuss these instances of arrogance and pride, but your name doesn't enter your head, it's likely because of pride itself. It's possible for us to be prideful in our assessment of pride. None of us are exempt from this temptation. If you want to turn there, you can. Luke chapter 18, verses 11 through 12. In Luke chapter 18, verses 11 through 12, Jesus tells a rather condemning parable about a Pharisee who thought of himself arrogantly. Verses 11 and 12 says this, The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of everything I get. The Pharisee is there proclaiming how grateful he is that he's not like the sinners around him. Jerry Bridges uh, points out about this passage in his book, uh, in his book Respectable Sins. I almost said Excellent Sins. That's, that's, uh, that's not good. But in his book Respectable Sins, Jerry Bridges said, the irony is that many of us look at this man with the same spiritual arrogance that this man had. You see, it's possible to look at this text right here where the Pharisee starts talking about how he's glad he's not other people. It's possible to look at that text and say, God, well, I thank you I'm not that Pharisee. And if that's even close to our attitude, we must immediately repent. We're so broken and we're so fallen. And if you're a saved person in this room, the only reason you're saved is because of the holy grace of God. I'm very fond of the saying, there but for the grace of God go I. And um, I'm sure some of you guys have heard it. It's all of your grandmas probably said it. Um, it's, it's, I, don't know, I don't know where it came from. I think I heard some, somewhere that it's from a Christian martyr. Um, who died for the faith. But it says, uh, there but for the grace of God go I. And it essentially means that if it wasn't for God's grace, we would be a Pharisee. There but for the grace of God, I would be. I would have been. If it wasn't for God's grace, we would be living a worldly and carnal life. We would be glorifying ourselves. The only reason we're one of his children is by the grace of God. And only when we internalize that and truly internalize it, can we attain any level of true humility? So my question for you is this. How in your life, according to these passages that we've studied, how are you prideful? Everyone in this room needs to grow in this area. I most certainly have pride in my life that needs to be rooted out. You most certainly have pride in your life that needs to be rooted out. And don't just hear this message on humility and pride and say that it really applies to your wife or that you really hope your husband is listening right now. Look at yourself 
and say, how can I grow and be more like Christ in his meekness? Listen for yourself to the word of God and when convicted, repent of your sin. Are you someone who hogs conversations? As we talked about earlier. Are you frequently interrupting others? Do you hate correction? That's a big one. Are you insecure in who you are? Insecurity is rooted in pride. It's rooted in a false need to be the best. Do you, do you desire to earn more money or have more stuff just so that you can have more than the person next to you? That's likely rooted in pride. Do you think that everything that you think theologically or politically is correct? Not politically correct, but politically is correct. Do you think that everything you think theologically or politically is correct? There's nothing, there's nothing worse than being the person who thinks that everybody outside of his narrow, his narrow lane of understanding of the Bible is, is going to hell. There's nothing worse than that person. And there are people like that who say, if you don't believe this, 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 and obviously there are close-handed issues that we will never compromise on. And there are secondary issues that we should never compromise on. But there are things in the Bible that aren't blatantly clear. And some people will say, if you don't agree with me on all of these all of these things that are certainly up for debate, then I think you're going to hell. And the danger of that is, if other people can be solely convinced that they're right and still be wrong, how does this guy know that he's really in the right camp? If he, if he really thinks it's that narrow. Do you often gossip about others? Like we talked about earlier, a frequent gossip is one who feels the need to place him or herself over somebody else. And especially when that person is not there to defend themselves. Do you know if you don't go to court when you have a speeding ticket, you will just get the ticket? Why is that? Because you're not there to defend yourself. And that's the same reason people gossip about other people when they're not around. Because tearing someone down when they're not there to defend themselves is a lot easier than doing it when they're there. Do you think that you're really not that sinful? That, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm basically good. I've, I've, I've been sanctified up to a point. That, that is a very dangerous example of spiritual pride. Because the more you grow as a Christian, the more you will realize how sinful you are. The more you grow as a Christian, the more sinful you realize that you are. When you first become saved, when you first become saved, those big sins that you, that you committed beforehand that broke you before Christ, oftentimes quickly go away. I think I've, I think I've talked about this here before. I know I have with the youth before, but... When you first become saved, the big sins go away and, and, and you, stop, you stop drinking too much and you stop doing this or stop doing that. And the more you become a Christian, the more sanctified you become and the more, bi- the more obvious sins go away, but the more you have a realization for the dirtiness and the brokenness and the sinfulness of your sinful heart. And I say you, I mean me as well. That's, that's true for all of us. The more I learn what it's like to be like Christ, the more I realize I'm not even close to being like Christ. And the only way that we can experience a, a wholesome relationship with the Lord is to bow before him and understand I'm not even close to perfect. I'm not better than anybody else. And I certainly don't deserve the kingdom of heaven. The best person you can possibly share the gospel with is the person who says, I, I don't think I can hear this because I don't deserve it. If someone says they think they're going to heaven because they do more good things than bad, got a lot of a lot of soil to till. And do it, because those people need Christ too. 
but we cannot think that we're anywhere close to deserving the grace of God. Are you often arguing with the people around you or with your spouse? I heard someone once say it's impossible to argue with a humble person. And I think that's pretty true. It's impossible to argue with a humble person. You'll have discussion, you'll have conversation, there'll be differences of opinion. But it's impossible to argue with a humble person. There are so many ways that we can be prideful. And I would, I, I would bet that if you identified with some of, the, some of these realizations that we're talking about, I would bet that they're probably bigger than you realize in your life. You say, yeah, I'm a little prideful here. You're prob- you're probably, I'm, I'm probably a little more, we, we all are probably a little more, or maybe a lot more prideful in the areas that we think we struggle with than we actually are. We all have blind spots, every single one of us. And arrogance and pride and a lack of humility and a lack of meekness is often the biggest one. I also want to say this, as I've said for a couple of weeks, these beatitudes are marks of a Christian. If you're not truly following Christ, fixing these areas in your life where you're prideful on the outside will be pointless and won't truly work. You can read how to win friends and influence people and make yourself look like a humble person, but you won't be a humble person. You'll be someone who's arrogant enough to try to make other people think you're a humble person. You have to repent of your sin. You have to turn to Christ. And I think it's fair to say that there's nobody more prideful than the Christian who isn't really saved but thinks he is. Because the defining characteristic of a Christian who thinks he's saved but isn't is someone who thinks that they deserve the kingdom of heaven. Jesus blessed the humble and he blessed the meek saying that they will inherit the earth. This is the theme all throughout scripture. Scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. So if you're proud, God is opposed to you. If you think you're great, you will receive hell. The only people God shows favor to are those who humble themselves before the Lord. Um, James 4, 6 says that, and the beginning of the passage I think is encouraging. Uh, I can't remember it off the top of my head, but it, it leans more towards the fact that God in his grace shows favor to the humble. So for those in this room who are truly blood-bought, born-again, child of the living God, you have to be humble. So what does a Christian do? What, what do we do when we read scriptures like this and are convicted by our pride? Where do we go from there? Pride, I think, is one of the hardest sins to eradicate in your life. Because as soon as you uproot pride from your life, Satan will tempt you by telling you that you're no longer as prideful as the next person. As soon as you uproot and get rid of the pride that's in your life, you will be tempted by thinking, oh, I'm actually, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm kind of really humble. I'm a, I'm a really humble, yeah, no. Satan will try and tempt you with that. But the key to, the key to, to fighting pride is understanding our humility before the cross. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was uh, one of the great preachers of the last century, was once asked by a friend how he can remove pride in his life. His friend asked this question um, to the pastor, asking if he would have some sort of special remedy to to remove this sin from his life. And Lloyd-Jones responded by saying this, and I quote, I have no method or technique. I can't tell you to get down on your knees and believe in prayer because I know you will soon be proud of that. 
There is only one way to be humble, and that is to look in the face of Jesus Christ. You cannot be anything else when you see him. That is the only way. The only way to remove pride in our lives is to look to God. It's to realize how great he is, how holy he is, and how small we are. God is so great that anybody who looks to him will of necessity be humbled. Um, I guess I, did, I didn't put this text in the screen, uh, but it, it doesn't matter. Numbers chapter 12, verse 3. If you want to turn there, you can. You don't have to. I'll just be here briefly. Um, Numbers chapter 12, verse 3 says this. Moses was a very humble man, more so than anyone on the face of the earth. Now, Moses, in fact, according to most uh, theologians, did in fact write numbers. So some people wonder how in the world Moses could have written numbers and said this, Moses was a very humble man, more so than anyone on the face of the earth. Yeah, it's, it's a little interesting, but the scripture is inspired by God, and I don't think for a second that that is a lie or a twist of the truth. And the reason I don't think that is because in the book of Exodus, we learn something about Moses that is not true for anybody else living at his time. Moses said to God, God, show me your glory. And God hid Moses and said, Moses, I will show you myself, but I can only show you my back, for if I show you my face, you will die. And God showed Moses his back. And it was so much that Moses' face, I believe, just glowed. But if God had turned around, Moses would have died by his glory. And I do not think that someone like Moses, who literally saw God in person, could ever walk away from that and say, I'm great. Because when we truly see God and understand God, we can never walk away with him and say, I'm great. And that's how Moses can say of himself, Moses was a very humble man, more so than anyone on the face of the earth. Because he was the only one on the face of the earth at his time to truly see the greatness of our God. God is so ridiculously great that he would make every one of us feel so humble and so lowly. So if you desire to grow in meekness, and if you desire to grow in humility, pray for the Lord to show you more and more of his greatness. Pray for God to show you more and more of his, of his glory. Seek the Lord and meditate on how great he is. Start to view yourself from God's perspective, not from man's perspective. It's so easy to look in the mirror, whether physically or just in your head, and look at your life and say, here I am. Now how do I line up with all the people around me? But when we truly see God, we, we view ourselves how God sees us. If you're driving through a neighborhood, it's easy to see which houses are well-kept and which houses are not. It's easy to see who, who mows their yard every five days and who waits every three weeks. Who mows it with a zero turn and who mows it with a pair of scissors. It's easy to see all of those things. It's easy to see who needs their front door painted, who needs a new porch, or even which house is really big and which house is really small. 
But if you're flying over the same neighborhood from 30,000 feet in the air, all of those details become irrelevant. No one can tell from an airplane which house is well-maintained, which yard needs to be mowed, which one has needed work for decades. All you see is the little dot of a roof, if you're even lucky enough to see that. And oftentimes, from ground level in this life, we can start comparing ourselves to other people, pointing out the differences in us and ranking ourselves accordingly. And by the way, if you, whether you rank yourself high on that list or low on that, on that list, the fact that you're doing that is rooted in pride. But we can convince ourselves that one of us is better than another just because of how we see it from our earthly perspective. But if we strive to see it from God's perspective and zoom out 30,000 feet, we would realize that God is so great and he's so much higher than we are. And he doesn't look at all those earthly things that make one person look or feel more successful than someone else. All of the material, social, and intellectual differences between people that we see are the equivalent to God as a gray house with black shutters and a white house with brown shutters from 30,000 feet in the air. You're not going to see it. And God doesn't look for those things. Paul says there's neither Jew nor Gentile nor slave nor free nor male nor female. God doesn't look at those things. All God cares about is whether we have been justified by the blood of his son. And that's all that we should care about. Not so we can be prideful over those who have not been justified, but, should, but so that we can be motivi- motivated rather, to share the gospel so that God in his grace can save those who are lost. I'd like us to close. Lynn, you can come on up this time. I forgot to do the invitation last week. It was kind of funny. I noticed this morning. Um, I'd like us to close just by reading Matthew chapter 5, verse 5 together. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So let's strive to learn what it means to be meek. Let's let Christ be our example of what humility is and let the, the scriptures teach us and convict us of our sins so that we can be more and more like Christ.